Would you please join with me in prayer? Holy Spirit, we just thank you that you have come and filled us and not forsaken us as we seek to follow you in every day of our lives. And we ask now that as we look at the fullness of who you are, Lord God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that we would have our hearts illumined, our minds illumined, and warmed to the reality of your grace and truth so that as we go forth from this place today, we would be joyful, peaceful, and loving no matter where we're found and bear fruit for your kingdom and for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Please be seated. Well, welcome to Trinity Sunday, my friends. This is the door hinge Sunday of the church calendar. What I mean by that, it's between the doctrinal seasons and the mission season for the next six months. We have spent six months in doctrine. December, Advent, our Lord is coming, right? We, we focus on He has come, preparing, preparing to celebrate Christmas, but He also is coming again. And then we celebrate that He has come during Christmas. Emmanuel, God with us. In Epiphany, we recognize that he truly has been revealed in this way. The mighty acts, and, and the lectionary reminds us of the great mighty acts that our Lord did for us in Epiphany. It means revealing. We then enter into the season of Lent. We're reminded there's a reason why he came. That we're sinners to the core and we need a Savior. And God has provided that for us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And what is that work? He died upon the cross for us. He's fulfilled what we could not do for ourselves. And then we recognize in Easter that he didn't stay in the tomb. He rose again. He conquered death. And during the end of the Easter season, we recognize that not only did he, was he raised again, he ascended and is seated at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us right now. And he's given us in Pentecost the Holy Spirit to live the empowered Christian life. And we're part of the Jesus movement, you know, today, just as the church in Acts was. It doesn't stop until our Lord comes again. And Trinity Sunday, we recognize that God in his fullness is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Because if we don't get this, our mission will fail. Because throughout June, July, August, September, October, November, we're a people sent. And I spoke to Bishop Minns, and I spoke to Bishop Mark, and they're pointing their finger at me saying, send them, Gene. And we're one of the churches which have the ability to make an impact. Trust me, we are. So, my friends, if I were to ask you, what is the Trinity? Could you explain it? Because in our culture, even within the church, there's two extremes that seem to go on. There's Christians who would say, ah, it's a mystery, I can't. Which is a cop-out, all right? All right? And two, the other one is, there's really no content in the belief of the Trinity. It's something that just came out of Christian mysticism, and therefore, you know, we can make up what we want. Which is the liberal church. That's not true. For I've had a Muslim ask me, can you explain the Trinity? Because you know what they're taught? The Trinity is veiled polytheism. 
they believe there's three gods, but we, yet we say there's one God. How, how do you explain that? If you come back to them and you say, well, you know, God is three in one. You know, well, you just described a shampoo, all right? That's not God, all right? So let's, let's review this because we're forgetful people. It's important for us to get this down. The doctrine of the Trinity is the belief that God is one in being and three in persons. One in being, three in persons. That's not a contradiction. If I said God was one in being and three in being, that would be a contradiction. All right? So what's the difference between being and person? I say this every year. It's important because we are forgetful people. I, just to remind you, I am a human being. I know that's up for debate, but I am a human being, all right? That's who, what I am. Because being is that quality, that essence, that substance of what I am. Whom I am is my person. I am Gene Sherman, son of Wes and Annie Sherman, husband to Kim. That's who I am. I'm one being, one person. That's who you are. You are a human being, and yet you are who you are. And God is one in being and three in person. And there's nothing like this on earth. And God has chosen to be this way. He is what he is. He's revealed himself. In the work of the Trinity. And I think there's enough evidence in this world to demonstrate that God exists. I think it's the most rational explanation and conclusion. It covers the most data. It makes the most sense. And yet the deeper revelation is necessary for us to know the deeper things of God. And to reflect upon the Trinity one Sunday out of 52 is absolutely necessary for us. So I refer you to our statement of faith, the 39 articles. The very first article, the reformers made sure, that Archbishop Thomas Cranmer made sure that we got this right. And here's what they said. There's only one true and living God who is eternal and without body, indivisible and invulnerable. He is of infinite power, wisdom, and goodness. He is the maker and preserver of all things both invisible and visible. Within the Godhead of the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons who are of one substance and power in eternity. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You might say, well, that's a seminary class. No, it's not. It's a Christian class. And this is something I want to encourage you. In the back of your prayer books, look at it, read it, mark it, inwardly digest it. God is not three in one. That's a shampoo. God is one in being, three in persons. And so in the lectionary text for this Sunday, I before have preached on the Old Testament passages of the Trinity. I've preached on the gospel passages of the Trinity. Today I picked an epistle because of the door hinge Sunday of the church calendar. Because Paul sends us out on mission but before we go, he asks us to take a final exam. All you students have been taking final exams. You know, There's nothing fun about final exams, I know. But this is a good examination for each and every one of us as we seek to follow 
God's mission as part of our Jesus movement. So I invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians 13. Uh, you can find it in the back of the bulletin if you're a guest, or you can find it on your devices. What's going on in Corinth is Paul, in his second visit to Corinth, he established a church in Corinth, then he wrote him a letter. He went back on a second visit, and he discovered while he's in Corinth, there's a bunch of younger, very cool, slick pastors that are telling the people of Corinth, don't listen to Paul. He's unimpressive. He's a Jew. We're Greeks. All right? And he doesn't speak like we do. And because he's trained in Hebrew rhetoric, if you will, and speaking ability, don't listen to him. We don't even accept his apostleship. Can you imagine? Well, it's like today, you know, you, you, you start to lose your hair, your start, hair starts to gray, and young people stop listening to you. Have you ever noticed that? You know, that your kids think you're crazy, all right? That's what's going on. He's the old guy now, and he isn't cool. And so, therefore, he goes back and he recognizes this is going on. And so he writes this second letter and he calls those leaders in the Corinthian church, you are super apostles. And he teaches them that if you're really strong in the Christian life, you know what you are? You're weak. Because that's the example of our Lord. We come in a life of my service for yours. My life for yours. So that's what Paul lays out this theme in this whole letter. In verses 1 through 4, he gives them a, a, a warning that he's going to come. Don't make me discipline you. We don't know what his discipline looked like. We, don't, you know, we know what excommunication looks like in our tradition. But we don't know exactly what it looks like. And he's been here before, quite frankly. In Ephesus, he delivered over Hymenaeus and Alexander, okay, in the book of Ephesians, to a similar fate, so they'd be taught not to blaspheme. He writes Timothy about them. He's the pastor in Ephesus. Also, we know in Corinth, he tells everybody, before you receive communion, to examine yourselves. So we don't know what kind of discipline he's going to bring when he arrives with his, with his posse. But the reality is he's warning them. And so for them to avoid whatever church discipline Paul is going to bring to them, he gives them a test. And I think it's a good exam for each and every one of us as we go into the season of mission. So first, there's a final exam. And secondly, there's a final prayer. So let's look at this. First, the final exam um, he says to test yourselves. Examine yourselves, verse 5, to see whether you're in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you fail to meet the test. I hope that you'll find out that, you have not, that we have not failed the test. And so what's the test? Is Jesus Christ in you? It's both a confessional and an experiential test, quite frankly. It's, it's notably subjective in this sense. 
Yes, it's a confessional test, but it's also a subjective test. Because it's important for us to examine our faith, because anybody can call themselves a Christian. My Basset Hound calls himself a Christian. That doesn't make him one, all right? And so no one truly knew except the individual themselves. And that's what Paul's putting on. He's putting it on the individual Corinthian believer, professing believer. And he's saying, examine yourselves. And Paul believes they're going to be honest. Because notice he says, he's playfully ironic, unless indeed you fail to meet the test. Indicates that he believes they won't fail. He's hopeful here. All right? And so this is a good question for each and every one of us. Is Christ in you? How do you know? What proof is there of presence, his presence in your life? Of course, along with Paul, I believe there's a core belief that surrounds true faith. So I think it's appropriate for us to ask those questions. Every new member is asked when, they, when we do a, a meet with them after people take membership matters at Christ Church. I ask them five questions. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving his displeasure? And without hope, save in his sovereign mercy. Two, do you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of sinners? And do you receive and rest upon him alone? For salvation as he is offered to you in the gospel. Three, do you now resolve and promise and humble reliance upon the grace of the Holy Spirit that you will endeavor to live as becomes a follower of Christ? Do you promise to support Christ's church in its work, its ministry, and its worship to the best of your ability? Five, do you submit yourself to Bishop Mark Engel, to the rector Gene Sherman in the vestry, and promise to study the church's purity and peace? See, God places authority over us. Those are the doctrinal questions. If you said yes, 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 yes to all those, that's great. But experientially, How's your prayer life? How's your time in God's word? How's your love for others? If you're desirous in any of those, awesome. If you're cold to that, this is a pass-fail examination. There's no grades A, B, C, D, or F here. This is in or out. Is Jesus Christ in you? It's important for us to discern that he is. And notice the wily old apostle is very clever here as he says, I hope you will find out that we have not failed the test. He says that we have not, me and my companions, we have not failed the test. Because he knows that if the Corinthians discern that Jesus is in them, you know, they must admit it. <laughs> and therefore he's not a false apostle. Right? They must embrace his authority because he should have authority. He's Paul. All right? So that's the first thing. That's the first examination question. But he doesn't stop there. He prays for them in verses 7 through 9. And it's important that we recognize this. 
And you know, when others in the church reject you or criticize you, the natural thing is to stop praying for them, right? They, they jump ship and they move to another church, stop praying for them, right? That's what we do. Not, not necessarily off the bat. Okay, but Paul prays that his Corinthian enemies will do no wrong. Verse 7, but we pray to God that you may not do wrong, not that we may appear to have met the test, but that you may do what is right, though we may seem to have failed. For we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. His prayer that they may not do wrong will stem, stem from a right belief, therefore they may do right in Corinth. Right? You know, he, he says, but that we pray not that we may appear to have met the test. Mainly saying, I don't care what you think of me. I pray that you may not do wrong because your practice comes from a correct faith, an understanding of the faith. And he's praying that they will be a blessing wherever they're found in the church of Corinth. Some of his enemies were so critical, relentlessly to him, that they would maintain with twisted logic that Paul's decision not to come to them with mighty acts proved that he was weak and fraudulent. But Paul is, the abiding rule for Paul is saying, I cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. You see, Paul's apostolic powers are not for show. He would come and preach the word first, and then as there were needs of healing or whatever else, or they, the, the, him and his companions would then minister in an appropriate way in the power of the Holy Spirit. Because... It's not flashy. It's just good old Christian ministry. So he closes the commentary on his prayer with an extension. For we are glad that when we are weak, we appear weak to you. I'm an old guy. I'm a shadow of my former self. You know? He says, when we are weak, you are strong. Your restoration is what we pray for. You see what he's praying for? is that they're restored to him and to the authority that he brings as an apostle, full of grace and truth among this people and restored to the Corinthian leadership. And the Corinthian leadership would not succumb to this. And that they will be strong in the faith even though he's growing weaker as an older man. Jesus says to us all, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven, Matthew 5, 44 and 45. Now, such a prayer does not make us a son or daughter, but they indicate that we're living like a son or daughter of God. It's important that we pray for our critics. Pray that they would do good. And that that doing good would come from a lively faith. But if they don't come to a lively faith, at least they'll do good. You see what I'm saying? That's what Paul's praying. And pray that they'll be strong even in my weakness. The church has a history of a smoking wreckage that departs 
in this way, the way the Corinthian super apostles are. So he concludes, for this reason, I write these things while I'm away for you, that when I come, I may not have to be severe in the use of my authority that the Lord has given me for building up and not tearing down. He doesn't want to tear that church apart, but he will if it's necessary. And so this is a warning to church leaders. So members of the vestry, listen up. <laughs> it's important for us to hear this. It sends the warning over the church and especially those who have transmitted current cultural practices into the church so that it's little more than a Christianized version of 21st century culture. It's also a warning to a leadership that's built on the cult of personality. Oh, there's lots of ministries like that, isn't there? The third kind of church it's a warning to is where worship is showtime. And where preaching is entertainment. And God's word is muzzled. And the pulpit panders to itching ears. The last church it's a warning to is where the focus is on our feelings and our comfort and our health and our wealth where super apostles are preferred over Paul. See, these warnings are relevant for our lives today. Uh, there's nothing really flashy about Anglican worship. I mean, here I am wearing a dress <laughs> like we've worn for 500 years here in our tradition. Um, you know, it isn't, I'm, I'm getting older, I'm getting quite unimpressive, just ask any of our young people. Um, that's okay. We're going to stay faithful to the call. And we're going to love our young people, we're going to love our old people, and this is relevant today as it was 2,000 years ago. And those who will honestly test themselves as we go into Trinity, Pentecost, ordinary time, that cr see if Christ is in them, they will enjoy the wonders of his presence in their lives. God does answer the prayers of those who pray that others, even their critics, will not do wrong but do right and will be restored to the fellowship of the church. It was the Corinthians' last chance. This is it. And the decision rested with them as it yet does with us. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. Like our seniors have taken final exams and are in graduation season and are studying hard, we pray that we would study hard as well and examine ourselves. It's a good thing. It's not easy, but it's good to recognize where we're doing well and where we're doing poorly in our walks with you. But yet, Lord, you are the Lord who, as we pray each and every week, always responds to us in mercy. And we cast ourselves at the mercy of the cross, Lord Jesus Christ. For Paul is so much like him, who is weak intentionally. Because when he's weak, they can walk in the strength of the reality of the good news of a relationship with you, Lord Jesus Christ who hung himself upon the cross for our sake so that we might be strong in you. Lord, help us to walk in that strength. 
and give our lives away by the power of the Holy Spirit, my life for yours, for your honor and glory, and that we might see a mighty movement of your spirit over these next six months. For your honor and glory, we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.